everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today for episode four of season two of Revise and Resubmit. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Bowen, an Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication Studies also at the University of Alabama. And we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research or the ICIR at UA. Before we tell you anything about our guest today, we do have to tell you that today's recording was like a series of unfortunate events. We are recording these episodes remo remotely and one or more of us dropped out three different times. So we are really sorry, but hang in there with us because this is such a great conversation. Today, we're gonna be talking about influencers and what's called micro and macro influencers. I truly learned so much in our conversation today. We're also gonna be talking about health campaigns and the way campaigns can be designed to actually help people. Imagine that. Yeah, I mean, imagine that. And it can be confusing, right? When we think about not only influencers and then also health and health campaigns and how influencers can actually influence. And am I an influencer? <laughs> not, I mean, not when it comes to social media. <laughs> but I can't tell you how many times I see ads that are identified by a hashtag. And then there are a number of times that I don't know if somebody on my social media feed is advertising something or not. And then I don't even know if I can define influencer or pick out different influencers in my own social media feed. But understanding the ways that influence happens, particularly when it's not just about like what genes we should be buying, but about our health, that's important. Please join us in welcoming Dr. Becky Britt, an associate professor in the Department of Journalism and Creative Media. Dr. Britt has a lot going on between writing proposals for external funding, analyzing data, and starting new projects with her collaborators. So welcome, Dr. Britt. Thanks so much for joining us today, Becky. Thank you for having me. So Becky, I'm gonna have to fess up here um, and admit to just a little bit of social media stalking of you, but truth be told, your cat is so cute. Um, so I think that stalking is justified. But I did see on one of your posts that you have trained your cat to high five and to sit. And I'm kind of struggling to get my dog to do that. So what's the secret? So I started giving her some treats and each time I would give her treats, I would just started, I started lifting her paw up and I would say high five and each, <laughs> and I would give her a treat as I did it. And then each time I started lifting it and then I'd let go high five and I'd give her ridiculous amounts of praise to make her feel really, really good. And I just started doing this about a week ago and I took a video of it too. Like I had my husband take a recording. So I have video proof. Because my brother didn't believe me when I told him I did this. So I've got videos of, of her actually sitting and doing this cute little high five. She doesn't raise her paw very high, but she can do it. Oh it's my really goodness. cute. That, that is sounds, amazing. So, so if you want to see it, I can send it because yes. it's super cute. The answer is yes. <laughs> For sure. 
So she's staring at me right now. <laughs> well, we were because we I keep saying it. Going to ask, you know, how how is she doing with the uh, Zoom meetings and how many appearances have you made? Oh, oh she makes a lot of appearances. <laughs> yeah, she especially in my my doctoral my doctoral seminar. It ends right before her dinner time at five, <laughs> and so at the end of that class, it ends around four thirty. She gets really antsy, so she jumps up and she meows and she. You know, her she's walking across the sometimes she walks across the computer and I have to scoop her down. <laughs> I always apologize and I just hope that I, I say, Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. There she is. But she's she's really cute and she can't help it. So I say she's getting her doctoral education. There you go. <laughs> there you go. You know, I have I I don't know how to do this study and we'll get into your research, but that just reminded me, you know, I I think that Whenever I see a puppy or a kitten or not probably a lizard on a Zoom call, like I automatically am like, oh, and I feel like I think my blood pressure goes down. Yes. You know, so maybe there's something there that maybe like statistics, we can teach that better if we just have animals in the background. I know. I think she's going to struggle when I'm face to face again and she's like at home because I think she just I think she loves all the extra attention Mm -hmm. and all of that it's been it had that's been really nice and I think she does make things calmer and happier and she's so sweet so yeah um yeah I I agree with you fully (laughs) (laughs) all right Becky can you tell our listeners just briefly um about who you are and where you are from yeah, so I'm Dr. Rebecca Britt. I usually just go by Becky. Um, I'm originally from Ohio. Um, and I guess just in terms of my research, just really briefly, I study health communication, and I really focus on health discourse, um, as well as sort of the structure of um, the dynamics of structure and temporal features in communication, whether that's through large data sets or um, online communities. I also address health disparities, uh, typically looking at health campaigns and interventions. Um, and right now I'm really doing a lot of work seeking to extend theories associated with online communities of practice mm-hmm. in an interpersonal and organizational level um, using pretty much a wide variety of theories and methodological approaches. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Okay, well, that's there's so much to dive into here. So <laughs> being that you're a professor of journalism and creative media, hopefully this mm-hmm. question won't be as difficult as it's been for some of our guests. <laughs> Could you give us a headline from one of your more interesting findings? Sure. So here's one I think I can think of. Uh, Mega versus micro beauty and fla- fashion influencer Twitter networks. They're not as distinct as we might think. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's great. (laughs) And I know that, you know, when I said that, I'm realizing that doesn't sound health related and it's not, but I have a point later as to how that might connect. Well, (laughs) well, tell us. Um, So I'll I'll talk a little bit about the findings of what that study is really briefly and then how that kind of how I see that being an extension of my health communication research. Um, So that study really was one where I led looking at micro-influencer versus mega-influencer beauty and fashion Twitter networks. Um, There's this kind of emerging idea that micro-influencers are sort of going to come in and overtake these mega-influencers, those that have 
you know, 500,000 plus to a million followers um, because these micro influencers who have, you know, maybe a couple thousand followers at most have these smaller, more intimate connections with their followers that they're going to become more influential. Um, And so in this study, um, we compared a network of micro and mega influencers. um, But one of the more interesting findings I think we saw was that the tweet content for micro influencers didn't show any substantial difference in their affective language differences. Um, And there's many more findings to really delve into. Um, Although the tweets that mentioned mega influencers featured substantially greater affective contents. And so mega influencers, really what they have is this long history of trust and ongoing interactions with their followers. But the micro influencers, what they have is they tend to play a more central role in their own reply networks, these sort of intimate connections they have, which that is an important finding. It does sort of go along with this emerging idea that they are important. Um, and that they really engage in the engage in these sort of two way dialogue via their replies. Um, and so, but I don't think they're necessarily these, you know, dis- really as distinct of these groups as uh, some of this emerging, uh, these news articles are suggesting that they are. Um, and so the connection I, I want to say that why this relates to health, because I know the study itself, it's not really health based, but I see it as an extension of one because looking at how individuals who promote content that influences their individual appearance, which has an effect on someone's well-being, their individual sense of self, their self-presence, studies like this, um, I think they help to understand what the networks are, the role these users have, and I think they pave the way for additional research lines that will allow me and my research teams to examine the influence of these users on how individual self-esteem functions, their self-presence, really importantly, their body image and other Mm. issues that emerge. Um, And that's one area that I'm starting to look at this year in my research, um, looking at online communities and the role that um, the potential influence that these influencers have (laughs) and as a result. And so this study sort of paved the way for me to start to do that. And so um, I think that that's why studies like this are somewhat important is that they sort of set that stage. Definitely. Well, I have to say, Becky, I mean, this all sounds fascinating and you're really talking about um, work that aligns with some of the work that I've done. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about how this comes together methodologically? Like, how do you actually study this? Yeah, so there are there are a lot of ways to study this, I think. Um, and so I think I'll speak broadly about this because um, so one of the ways that we can do this is um, and I want to say and the reason I want to say this broadly is because there's no one right or wrong way to do it. There's um, in this study, we you we looked at Twitter posts. And so we um, scraped um, a number of Twitter posts to look at this sort of broadly. But there are other ways to do this. So you can do a qualitative analysis of a sample of Twitter posts. Um, Even rhetorically, this can be done looking at sort of the content of posts and deriving the meaning therein. Um, And quantitatively, there can be predictions that are made about the associations of certain users, um, user to user networks, and so forth. And so there are a lot of ways that this work can be done. Um, I think one of the things that I'm really looking at more recently is looking at sort of the, what are the broad sort of discursive practices being made and how has that evolved over time um, Mm -hmm. in many of these online communities, as well as, you know, whether it's on Twitter, um, 
I'm starting to look at some things on Instagram. And so a lot of that, sometimes it's done through data scraping. Sometimes it has to be done manually. And so there's, it just really depends. And so I love the question that you asked because there's really so many approaches that, that it takes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, first I, I have to say, I was a little bit like, Oh, when you talked about these minor influencers, even mm-hmm. having a thousand followers, mm-hmm. um, because that makes me like a, 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 a we, we post things from the ICIR and we like get three likes. <laughs> we have seven <laughs> followers. We <laughs> step up our <laughs> um, So tell us a little bit about, um, you've been mentioning we've done this and we've done that. Who is your we? And tell us a little bit about the collaborative process of your work. Sure. Um, so a lot of what I do is collaborative research in general. In fact, as I, I realized as I was speaking, I keep saying we, but I've got a lot of research teams that I work with because <laughs> I often say that I'm good at a couple of things and I'm really bad at a lot. And so um, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I want to be honest because I think that um, for my work, I can't think of, as I was thinking about this, I can't think of a single project I have that's solo authored. I think that my work is um, best when it's collaborative because I love bringing in the perspectives of others. And so, so much of the work I do is collaborative in nature. Um, I collaborate with anyone and everyone who is interested in a project or if they have something to contribute, whether it's an idea or a certain skill set or an interest. And so I've got teams um, that include faculty from um, Dr. Van Dyke and I, for instance, have a team with faculty in here in the college, engineering, computer science. So we've got one team, um, another team um, from a project uh, that I that I have with um, this is more of a health based project that's it's wrapped up but we're still kind of working on a few research articles from it includes faculty from here at the University of Alabama South Dakota and faculty in the state of Texas and so we're really widely dispersed um, and so there's so those teams I think. Um, and then I've got some collaborators in Japan and I've, I've got wow. a collaborator I meet with weekly in the UK. And so wow. I've got, I'm, those are all really important to me to have those connections and to work with folks that contribute in really meaningful ways. Um, so the project I just mentioned, that was a project that I worked on primarily with uh, Dr. Jameson Hayes, um, Dr. Brian Britt and Hassan Park, a doctoral student. And so they all contributed something really uniquely to to that process um, and so having all those um, projects be collaborative is great because everyone has sort of a role and a unique skill they contribute to it and I just love that it just makes the work exciting it keeps me on my toes um, yes. in the case of some of the ones that are <laughs> where I have overseas collaborators sometimes I've got meetings that are <laughs> at unusual times. I just had a meeting this Monday at 6 p.m. because Japan is um, it's 14 hours behind or ahead. I'm not sure, but it was 8 a.m. for her. And so we, oh, wow. we made it, but we made it work. And mm-hmm. um, that's when we've been, we've been meeting and it's, it keeps things fun. So Becky, um, one of the criticisms we often hear in academia mm-hmm. is that we sit here in our ivory tower and we publish our research in academic journals or we write books, um, <laughs> but it doesn't really help people. Can you talk a little bit about the application of some of your own work? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So actually, the team that I mentioned that has faculty at UA South Dakota and Texas, that project that we had worked on was a social media campaign that promoted living kidney donation and transplantation among Native American communities. And that project involved stakeholders, hospitals, um, as well as tribal communities um, from those uh, re- from those regions and areas. And so that was a very direct application of that campaign. Um, and I love the campaign effort. Everyone else, you know, had other roles, whether it was doing some qualitative work or there was training um, for interviews that were conducted. So there were a lot of distinct roles there. One of the really cool things about that project was that Uh, We presented that work at public um, conferences that were open to the public um, at Native Mm. American sort of um, summits. That was where we were able to present white papers and deliverables where it wasn't in this traditional academic setting, but where the results were disseminated in sort of a public venue. And so those results were put into practice and where we also met with tribal councils to ensure that not only were their needs being met, which that was part of this sort of community-based participatory approach that we took, but to ensure that those, the results of that were being sort of communicated clearly and disseminated along the way. Um, So I would say that's one example, but also delivering white papers and presenting outside of the academic sphere and the ivory tower, as I think you put really well, um, that's been something that's been really um, important. And so I think that that is something that makes work, especially with health communication, um, so important is that often these issues that we we look at and seek to address, especially with health disparities, which is often at the crux of what I do, mm-hmm. is seeking to work with partners and say, how can we get this out there and put into practice? Or how can we present these findings in a way that make it um, useful or make it at least, you know, is, is there someone that would benefit from this? So it's not just this paper that sort of sits behind a paywall, so to speak. Um, that's a challenge. I'll be honest. That's a huge challenge. Yeah. Um, I, I find that too, that working with some of my collaborators and serving on um, sort of, um, I, I serve on a board for the Japan U.S. Communication Association because a lot of my work is also culturally um, based. And so some of the things we talk about are um, how do we get the work out there? How do we get the word out there? Whether it's mm-hmm. through producing newsletters, putting those out there publicly online. I think things like that help. I think there's a lot of work to be done, but I think some of those things can certainly get out there. And so I think that's one of the great things too about doing this campaign and intervention work where community members are involved and we're doing this work um, where even if things are put out there online, or where you're presenting at these sort of non-traditional spheres can be, can really put it into practice. Um, so you talk a lot, you talk a, a, a lot about the health communication aspect, but that involves health. And you talked about kidneys, and I know you do work with dentists and dentistry. So how do you get involved in those kind of multidisciplinary projects? Mm-hmm. And what is your background in the health aspect? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, So one of the things that I'm always doing is uh, educating myself on priority health issues, uh, both for the state, the region, as well as nationally. And when I look at those issues, I try to uh, work with collaborators and address and figure out ways to address those. And so some of the studies that have emerged are starting points that I use as pre-data in grant applications 
to design hmm. interventions or to work towards develop, seeking funding for developing interventions or campaign efforts to improve, say, um, oral hair, care uptake in, say, hmm. rural health areas that might need better adherence or education and guidelines um, for those areas. Um, in the case of cardiovascular disease, that's another um, big area and a really, um, a really big issue in the country. And so um, that's a really big thing for me is to really educate myself and keep abreast of medical issues um, in the country. And I really try to pay attention to, again, at the state level, what those issues are and what are, what are ways I can serve or seek to address those issues. And so one of the big things for me has been to gather sort of that early data and develop those studies, gain an understanding of, in many cases, public discourse, and then mm -hmm. as well as other studies, and use that to help inform uh, my research, which is, um, in many cases, grant applications, um, as well as other projects. So that's a wonderful question. And that's a lot of the other work I'm doing right now, too. So um, I'm really glad you asked that. And it makes sense, right? Because, you know, like, I mean, when I read academic journal articles that, I mean, when I WebMD myself and then try to go find a journal article, I'm like, I don't understand this at all, but I understand the WebMD part. Yes. So, you know, when you talk about, hey, I'm going to actually, you know, hear what people are talking mm -hmm. about, that makes, I mean, that makes what we do also the research component more accessible as well. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you're exactly right. And that's, that's exactly how I think, um, I, I think that I, I consider that as well. So I think that's a, that's a great example for another study idea. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So shifting gears just a little bit, Becky, you, again, putting on the hat of an academic, it's sometimes discouraging or tough mm -hmm. to be going through the revise and resubmit process. And um, it takes a good bit of, um, of motivation and persistence. Can you tell us about an experience that you've had with revising and resubmitting and persisting and mm -hmm kind of how you stay positive and optimistic with all that? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Uh, because I think, um, you know, thinking about that, I, I think back to my graduate training at Purdue University, where we were taught early on that you persist, that you continually submit, you, you, if you get an R&R, &R, you do that R&R, &R, you address, you know, feedback, you know, assuming you agree with it. And, you know, or you try to find ways to address it or think, you know, is this something that will contribute? Um, I actually had a great R and R experience at mobile media and communication this year, where the feedback it was it was extensive feedback um, I received, but it actually really made the manuscript a lot better. Uh, um, the reviewers were extensive and thorough, but they were actually they were right about about their feedback regarding um, the study, and they they provided great methodological insight. And so I actually really appreciated that that process. And it was one where I, I was like, wow, this, this is actually really helpful. And this is actually this actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, and so that that process was one I appreciated. And I think the um, the editor was was great in that process. And so it really worked out quite well. Um, and then I've had other experiences where I've had multiple R&Rs where it's gone beyond <laughs> one round and then it's an excess or no it's gone through two or three and you're wondering is this thing ever going to get published or why am I why am I doing this am I doing two R and R's just for it to get a reject but but no it, it is that persisting process where you're 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 doing it and you're 
you know, obviously they're the if you're being pushed through the ringer, the idea is there there's there's a goal in mind. Um and so Becky, finally, um we're gonna switch gears just a little bit more. And um, as academics, we have the good fortune of being able to travel to different countries or different cities around the U.S. for conferences to present research. Um, And you've mentioned a little bit about where you have gone to talk to actual people about the research that you've done um, who are not academics. What is one of the favorite places that you have visited um, or would like to uh, visit um, to present your research? Um, my favorite place that I visited was Japan. I loved visiting Fukuoka. That was that was by far my favorite location I've gone to. Wow. So I was in Japan, and I have to say my experience was a little bit different, and it may have been the uh, the jet lag and all of that sort of stuff. I um I loved being in Japan and some of the things that I got to see were kind of cool, but I think it was also challenging as um a an American who does not speak any Japanese. I kind of felt like, "Oh, I'm having a hard time getting around not knowing Japanese." But it was it was definitely beautiful. So I, I love to hear that. Becky, it has been um, such a pleasure to talk to you today and learn so much about the research and all that you have going on. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed this today. Thanks, Becky.